Hello everyone, it's Takuyi here. And I'm Gabby. And we are the hosts of History of Everything, a podcast which you can probably guess by the name is, well, I mean, it's about everything. Do you want to know why people thought potatoes were evil and would give you syphilis? Are you curious about all the stories of the terrible and stupid ways that people have kicked the bucket over the years? Do you want to hear tales about all of the different badasses of history and the lives that they had brought to life? Well, if so, then look no further. History of Everything is just the right podcast for you. It's available on Spotify, Pandora, and anywhere else that you get your podcast from. Join us for some fun and just see how weird and wacky history can be. The Box of Oddities is now a CastBox original. CastBox is the fastest growing, highest rated podcast app on both iOS and Android, where you can find all your favorite podcasts. You can listen to The Box of Oddities wherever you access your podcasts. But we hope you give CastBox a try. The curator is greatly pleased with CastBox. We think it's the best. What follows may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. The world is full of stories. Stories of mysteries. Of curiosities. Of oddities. Join Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected as they lift the lid and cautiously peer inside the box of oddities. So we got a message from uh, one of the freak listeners who said that during one of our episodes, our previous episodes, we mentioned the name of the Amazon Echo device that starts with an A. Oh, yes. Allegra. Well, close. Yeah. And it activated their their Echo. (laughs) (laughs) And um, I thought... You know, that's a great idea because we, we get a lot of uh, comments from people saying that they, they put us on while they're puttering about the house, they're doing housework, they're working, they're just, you know, and, and, I'm, and I'm pretty sure that um, there are times when we say things that they don't notice. So if we were to say her name and make her do some kind of a weird thing, that would be awesome. Oh, and so like the, wouldn't notice because maybe they're in the middle of something else, cooking dinner or something. Right, so right. Um, they wouldn't notice right. if we said, Alexa, add butt plugs to my shopping list. Yeah, right. We could just if we just casually threw that in mm-hmm. and didn't really, you know, pause to emphasize it. Right. And, you know, if we said, you know, like, Alexa, add more butt plugs to my shopping list, then, you know, they probably would be in for a little bit of a surprise when they were at the grocery store. Right. It would be even funnier if there were multiple items. Like, for instance, if we were to say something, I don't know, along the lines of, Alexa, add pork and whiskey to my shopping list. Yeah. And you see, as long as we just kept moving, a lot of that would probably get by people. Exactly. Until they were at the store. Excellent. Yeah. And uh, perhaps, you know, she's at the store and she looks at it and it's her husband's list. That would be hilarious. <laughs> I mean, we would never do that. No, we would never do that, anything like that. That's really childish. I love the uh, Echo because I can do my shopping lists through it. And uh, later on, I will look at the list. Uh, I'm looking at ours right now, for instance. Right. And for some reason, it took to about a month ago before the system updated so you couldn't add the same item more than once. Um, so if I were to say, Alexa, add coffee to the shopping list. Um, she would say, it appears you already have coffee on your shopping list. And by the way, you sound a lot like... Oh, thank you. Um, And so you go, okay, yeah. But up until that point, our shopping list was just like a 
bizarre series of the words coffee, butter, and ass wipes. <laughs> Alexa, add coffee, butter, and ass wipes <laughs> to my shopping list. <laughs> yeah, no, but that would be wrong. That would be so wrong and it would be really wrong. So anyway, you go first. What do you have? Oh, excellent. You know how we've talked about the kind of uh, completion backwards principle principle on mm-hmm. many occasions. Well, sure. um, well let's explain what that is. Uh, well, you you have a goal and then you kind of build the uh, efforts to it backwards. So yeah. the, the end result is is where you start and then you kind of build backwards. If you're writing a story and you have a great way for a story to end mm-hmm. and you don't have the rest of the story, you start with that and then you, you build it backwards. Right. Or punchline first, set up second. And um, this is one of those cases. I found something and I was like, okay, I got to figure out a way uh, to share this incredibleness. And uh, so this is how uh, we're going about that. Uh, welcome uh, to today's thing. Okay. All right. Let's start off by saying the largest land mammal today is the African elephant, weighing up to 10.4 tons with a shoulder height of up to four meters, which is like 13 feet. But the largest land mammal of all time may have also been a proboscidean. Um, its name was Palaexodon namadicus. Shamalamadingdon. Like, yep. Um, which may have weighed up to 22 tons with a shoulder Ooh. height of 17 feet. When did this fascinating creature stalk the earth? I will tell you about that. By the way, 22 tons, I had a hard time in my brain. You know how I have a hard time with mm-hmm, measurements mm-hmm, and I couldn't mm-hmm. quite make it work. So that's about as much as 13 average cars. How many grilled cheese sandwiches would that be? <laughs> I didn't do that math. Okay. You need a grilled cheese calculator. <laughs> so there are roughly a dozen species of mammoths and mastodons that ranged across the globe at different times in the last 25 million years. And the last of them died out, for the most part, at the end of the Pleistocene epoch, which marked the end of the last ice age. So fairly recently. Fairly recently. In the overall picture. Absolutely. And the most famous of those is the woolly mammoth, which appeared on the scene relatively late. That was around 350,000 years ago. And it survived long enough to coexist with early humans in North America, Europe, and Asia. That whole story in itself to me is fascinating. The whole woolly mammoth extinction and how the flash freeze in Siberia happened so quickly. One of the woolly mammoths. And it, of course, everybody's heard about or seen documentaries um, on the woolly mammoths and how they were preserved so perfectly. Um, and probably you've seen pictures of them being dug up and thawed out and that sort of thing. But one of the baby woolly mammoths that they dug out of the uh, permafrost had died so rapidly, there were still buttercups in its mouth. Which makes me so sad. I'm sorry. I can't. Just, you know, yeah, frozen mid-chew. And the meat is so fresh that uh, some of the indigenous peoples in the area would uh, dig it up and eat it. Yeah. 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 Um, There was a a dinosaur special that we were watching a few months ago, and one of the the little uh, raptor guys broke his leg. And it was kind of like, you know, the sad music came on and they were like, and he wouldn't be able to hunt ever again. And I knew that, you know, he was obviously going to waste away and and not be able to feed himself. And, you know, so obviously I'm just weeping. And you're like, honey, he died millions of years ago. And 
He was a cartoon. It doesn't matter. On that show. Anyway, the only areas that were not found to have been home to at least some of these species are Antarctica and Australia. All but three of the species are now extinct, leaving only the Asian elephant, the African savanna elephant, which is currently the world's largest land mammal, and the African forest elephant. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I was reading today was talking about the chemical signatures that they found in fossilized teeth that revealed that at least one species of proboscidean, I hope I'm pronouncing that right, um, of an ancient elephant relative lived in an aquatic environment. So the teeth of that ancient animal, which belonged to a genus called Moritherium suggests that it ate freshwater plants and dwelled in swamps or river systems. Kind of like uh, maybe a, like a manatee type thing. They're, they think that they may have been uh, more closely related to manatees and that the early trunks that they had would have been used kind of like snorkels. Oh, wow. Um, Moritherium lived some 37 million years ago and didn't much resemble modern elephants. It was probably about the size of a tapir, um, which we saw in person for the first time ever. And I wept a little bit when we were in Ecuador. Yeah, we wanted to take one of those home. Oh my gosh, wasn't he amazing? Yeah, they looked like giant guinea pigs. And I, No, that was a capybara. Oh, I want one of those too. The, t- <laughs> the tapir was the one that you kept going, where's its head? Oh yeah, that one. <laughs> <laughs> But the scientists who did this study did caution against assuming that aquatic ancestry from modern elephants or even suggesting that all uh, proboscideans were aquatic was not a good idea, Hmm. that that branch could have been a separate branch uh, of the tree that entirely led to the line of elephants. Okay. So proboscidea is a Greek word that means having a nose. <laughs> they had a word for having a nose? Yep. Okay. And uh, this order was first described in 1811, and it encompasses the trunked mammals. The first proboscidean that actually looked reasonably like an elephant occurred about 35 million years ago, and it's called paleomastodon. Paleomastodon was about the size of a cow, mm-hmm. and he had tusks and a short trunk. A little bit later on, there were a couple of species, uh, one called Platybelodon and Amybelodon. Um, They were large mammals uh, related to the elephant that lived during the Miocene epoch. These two types of, these two types of proboscidea um, had tusks that were built slightly differently. The Ambelodon, and the one that starts with A, his tusks <laughs> shot out um, kind of like a spear coming from underneath his, his jaw. So it was like a bony goatee. Something like that. And the platy, the one that starts with P, yeah. he had the, the normal trunk and then a tusk uh, in, on top, but the bottom part of his jaw jutted out like a large shovel and they think what? they use that to um scrape bark off of trees really wow wow she's showing me a, a photo of the skull of this creature and it looks well demonic it's insane the end of the shovel 
part of his jaw looks to be tipped with two giant teeth. Um, and they're squared off, so he would use those to kind of scrape the bark up off the trees yeah. and into his mouth. Wow. And uh, it's terrifying. It's horrifying. For reals, yo. So there are several species that... Scientists are still a little unsure about how that tree worked, Mm -hmm. uh, which branches led to modern day elephants and which kind of died off and and were their own kind of deal. Mm -hmm. Some looked kind of like modern day elephants meets anteaters. Uh, (laughs) Some looked like modern day elephants meet a fluffy blanket. You know, like the the woolly mammoth. Oh, you know, all, okay. All um, what was that? What was Big Bird's friend's name? Mister Snuffleupagus. The, exactly. Come on. <laughs> but it's still uncertain uh, about. I don't know how to say what I'm trying to say. But there are still some species that we don't know exactly where in that tree that they fall. Um, and it may be because new research uh, published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences show that ancient elephants were uh, very much the product of inbreeding between species. So these ancient, so these ancient proboscideans, um, as long as they lived in the same time period, were cool with you know getting together and doing their thing. Uh, this was the the. Thing that spurred this story. I found an article that I would absolutely suggest checking out and reading, and it was in Gizmodo. The article's called Ancient Elephants and Mastodons Were Totally Down with Interspecies Boning. <laughs> okay. Now that's a headline that grabs you. <laughs> So um, if you are interested in learning more about any of these incredible species, I would suggest uh, Googling ancient elephant timeline, uh, which brings up some really incredible uh, information, including that article uh, that references the interspecies boning. Um, I do want to mention that it was about the same time that the mammoth was coming to its existence that the Asian elephant was as well. And the Asian elephant actually originated in Africa, and it's believed to have a stronger evolutionary tie to mammoths than it has with African elephants. Yeah, no, I had read that in a story where they were speculating how they could take recover DNA from frozen woolly mammoths Mm -hmm. and, you know, do the whole Jurassic Park thing. Right. Horrible idea. Right. Don't do it. Bring it back to life. And and they said that they could, in theory, it could very easily be done Mm -hmm. because the Asian elephant is so closely related as far as the the DNA goes. They could very easily. Right. And apparently they're cool with interspecies boning. Right. And now we know this. Mm. So the woolly mammoth was the last to emerge. Um, That species developed about 400,000 years ago in East Asia, with some surviving in Russia until as recently as roughly 3,700 to 4,000 years ago. Wow. They were still in existence during the construction of the Great Pyramid of ancient Egypt. That puts it in perspective for me. That's incredible. It is, isn't it? Timelines. Are nuts. Maybe they use them to haul the big granite blocks to build the pyramid. Maybe we've solved the problem. Maybe we've we've finally answered the mystery on how to, how they built the pyramids. 
reading some of the articles that I read today really does put the the time period between certain species into perspective. It's kind of like when you learn about the fact that, you know, T-Rex existed closer to us than T-Rex existed to um, Stegosaurus or yeah, whatever. Yeah, right. Mind blown when you told me that. Right. So anyway, uh, mammoths, mastodons, uh, all incredible. Shovel tusk guy, uh, never heard about before, so really interested in that. Um, there's too much uh, to even cover in, in an episode because these ancient elephant ancestors, uh, widespread, interesting in all ways, it's too much. I I almost didn't do it because when I started researching this, I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so interesting. And then I got about two hours into reading stuff and I was like, it's too much. I'm so <laughs> tired. I'm so tired. I don't know what else to tell you, except there's so much more to learn. Hop on the Google machine. Yeah, that's <laughs> this is just a few minutes of information to tell you to go study yourself. <laughs> yeah, you're welcome. <laughs> and now. The Box of Oddities brings you that thing in the middle. So today's thing in the middle is just kind of a list of random weird facts. Five weird facts real fast. Number five, even though Fruit Loops are different colors, they all have the exact same flavor. Cardboard, I think. Stop. Number four, most toilet paper sold for home use in France is pink. Is that true? No. Why? Number three, Cards Against Humanity bought an island in our home state of Maine to preserve wildlife. It's called Hawaii, too. Number two, the human nose can remember 50,000 cents. How much is that in dollars? I'm really... And number one, Daddy Long Legs have penises, which technically makes them not a spider. The Box of Oddities with Kat and Jethro Gilligan-Toth. What's up, freaks? Are you ready for the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected? Cat and Jethro Gilligan Toth tell the oddest stories to your ears unprotected. Stories of pugs and the snorties. How weird. And the poop chart. Okay, that's actually pretty weird. Listeners for being with us here As we lift the lid And cautiously peer Inside the box of oddities It's sometimes dark and morbid Full of quality So let's lift the lid And cautiously peer Inside the box of oddities It's sometimes Let's lift up. 
Songfinch sent that to us, and uh, I love it, and it's stuck in my head. <laughs> and the fact that it's now my ringtone probably doesn't help matters much. Probably not, or or me for that matter, but I love <laughs> it. It's so good. And that's the thing about Songfinch is they work with incredible artists to create real songs that you actually want to hear. Personalized songs that start at just uh, $99 and are delivered within seven days. So... You still have time, if you hurry, to get one made for a special person in your life for the holiday season. We love our song, and we are sure that you'll love yours. Who doesn't want a personalized song made about them? Or about somebody that you love. You can use it for uh, certainly a, a, a holiday gift or weddings or anniversaries, birthdays, valentines. Oh, hey, maybe you know somebody that's going to have a baby. That'd be a cool gift. That would be a cool gift. Oh, and they can carry it with them through their life. It would be like, this is that baby's, it would be like Elton John's Your Song. Aww. Can I say that? Sure. Okay. The last time we played the song, we mentioned that uh, it'd be a good way to quit your job, too. You know, <laughs> which I love that idea. Or, or how about this? Break up with somebody. Ooh, yeah. These are all the reasons that you're not good enough for me. <laughs> Only the difference would be their version would be very, very professional compared to what you just heard. So <gasps> please. Uh, are you saying that? Yes. Yes, I am. <sighs> I'm shocked. Shocked. If you want to get $20 off your first song from scratch, go to songfinch.com. When you're checking out, use promo code BOX. Songfinch.com, promo code BOX. Get 20 bucks off your personalized song from scratch. You fill out a little thing. You tell them what you want to write about. You put a few keywords in and what... The genre that you want it in. The the feel of it. Uh, is it a, is it supposed to be funny? Is it supposed to be serious? They, they take all of that and they make you one incredible personalized song. I think our song speaks for itself. There you go. Songfinch. Songfinch.com. Promo code box. Get $20 off your personalized song from scratch. We love Songfinch. We really love Songfinch and we think you will too. Again, don't base their abilities on what we just on what you just heard. Hey. So, you know, we've been talking about uh, this game, Hunt a Killer, and a friend of mine came up. He had heard it and he said, what is that available for like PS4? And <laughs> and I said, it's the operating system is life. <laughs> you play it in real time in real life. And it's a heck of a lot of fun. And it's super addictive. Hunt a Killer is your new favorite obsession. It's a monthly subscription where you become a detective immersed in a murder mystery. If you like the thrill of, say, an escape room, or if you're into clues and solving puzzles, you love true crime, this is the game for you. Each month, you'll receive crime scene photos, evidence, motive, and suspect information that you'll need to solve a crime. Now, you can play it solo. It's perfect for that. You can play it, like, on a date night. You've talked about bringing it to uh, pod outings at your place of business. I have talked about that. I decided against it, though, because I don't want everyone else to hate me. Because <laughs> you're obsessed with it. A little. Uh, well, it's understandable. You can even join an online community, though. Uh, you can work with other people who are at the same point in the story as you. And over 60,000 people have joined Honda Killer's online community. And they have over a thousand five-star customer reviews. And right now, just for our listeners, you can go to huntakiller.com slash box for 10% off your first box. But keep in mind, they only accept 200 members per day. So you've got to hurry to take advantage of this offer. It's exclusive and swanky. 
Ha ha ha. See if you have what it takes to get into the mind of a serial killer and solve the mystery. Go to huntakiller.com slash box for 10% off your first box. That's huntakiller.com slash box. It's like you're a character in a crime drama, except it's better acted. And you don't get stains on your pants. What? Oh, you said crime drama. I thought you just said crime. (laughs) More fun than a Civil War reenactment without the smell of fried chicken, sweaty wool, and sunscreen. This is The Box of Oddities. So, what you got for me? (laughs) Well, during World War I... Between July of 1914 and when the war ended on November 11th in 1918, did you realize that over 17 million people died? What was the time period again? About four years, four and a half years, not even that. 17 million people died. 10 million of them were civilians. 7 million of them were military personnel. So more people that weren't in the war, died in the war than those who did die that were in the war. But did you know this? Between March of 1918 and December 31st of 1918, as many as 100 million people died from the Spanish flu epidemic. Oh, wow. And that's worldwide? Yeah, that's worldwide. Wow. In 1918, the influenza pandemic known as Spanish flu, and, and they called it Spanish flu, by the way, because the, um, the king of Spain, he was the first famous person to get it. Got it. And uh, he survived. But because of that, Spain got blamed for it. <laughs> it really wasn't <laughs> Spain's fault. It was, uh, there were small pockets of it developing around the world at this time. Mm-hmm. I, was, I don't mean to interrupt. A hundred million? Fifty upwards toward a hundred million. <laughs> people and it infected 500 million people worldwide it was everywhere they were saying at one point during the peak of this that most it speculated that most people living on the earth at that point had signs of the virus in their nostrils so even just breathing it you were you were spreading it around oh sure even if you were not presenting any kind of uh, symptoms or signs of having the flu everybody they speculate, was a potential carrier. How would they know it's inside of everyone's nostrils? Speculation. They're okay. speculating that. All right. I'm just they didn't. They did not inspect everybody's noses. It's kind of like the speculation that we are all breathing dinosaur farts. Yeah. Okay. Which I love that idea, by the way. <laughs> it's weird because it even infected people on remote Pacific islands. How is that even possible? I don't know. Birds. Oh. Yeah. The virus originated in uh, in birds and oh. was was transmitted to humans, and then humans, of course, you know, were all over the place wrecking stuff. And we were just, <laughs> accurate. We were just learning the other day about how uh, birds are so often the the way that life is carried to remote yes. islands. So yes. why wouldn't it also be the way that diseases are carried yes. to remote islands? That's exactly right. Now this is the deadliest. Natural disaster in human history. I had no idea. Nowadays, when we get the flu, there are still, you know, there's still a lot of deaths. A lot of people still die from the flu annually. Right. I thought I did earlier this year. No, you survived. You you beat the odds, you toughie. <laughs> it was a close call there for a while, though. Yeah. What with the bleeding and the crying. And the crying and the bleeding. 
But nowadays, when there is a death, statistically, it's more likely to be a very young baby or or child or a very old person. Mm -hmm. What made this a strange situation is the average death during the um, 1918 flu epidemic was about 27 years old. Between 20 and 36 was the, uh, the demographic with the highest rate of flu death. Do they have any idea why that is? They speculate. Oh, the speculation again. <laughs> well, there aren't many people left that were there at the time. Because, um, by the way, it's 100 years exactly. Oh, wow. 100 years ago, exactly this took place. They speculate that uh, there had been similar flu strains but not for a while, not for like 30 years or so. Mm-hmm. And so those who had it beforehand had, had built up a resistance to it. Yes, yes. One group of researchers actually recovered the virus from the bodies of frozen victims. Why? I don't know. They found that transfection in animals caused a rapidly progressive respiratory failure and death due to uh, an overreaction of the body's immune system. So it, 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 it stimulated something to happen that, um, that caused the body's immune system to overreact and start to eat itself, I Just guess. Just kill you. That's insane. And I think it's really interesting how certain types of viruses or certain illnesses, diseases, what have you, can move between humans and animals and certain others can't. Why? What makes them different? I don't know. It was postulated that the strong immune reactions of young adults ravaged the body, whereas the weaker immune systems of of children and middle-aged adults resulted in fewer deaths among those groups. And that, in combination with the fact that there was a similar strain of flu a generation before, which helped the older population uh, withstand this onslaught. That's insane. It's crazy, isn't it? More recent investigations based uh, mostly on original medical records from uh, from the period of the pandemic uh, found that the viral infection itself was not more aggressive than any previous influenza, but that uh, the special circumstances of the epidemic, because there was malnourishment, overcrowding, certainly at medical camps and hospitals and poor hygiene at the time, as well as the war going on, that was the reason. It was like a perfect storm. It was. You think about all of the people that are being shipped all over the world for this war. It it didn't take long before it affected all major populated areas. Wow. And it's it's a weird thought. And and I feel like maybe an interesting premise for a movie that it's those that had the healthy immune systems that were being kicked off. So it's like. You know, what if it, it happened again? What if there was some sort of like zombie outbreak, uh, but only those people who like consistently ate fast food were safe? <laughs> There's no way to beyond a shadow of a doubt pinpoint where the flu began. Sure. But uh, there's an historian. His name is Alfred W. Crosby. He recorded that the flu originated in the U.S. state of Kansas. A popular writer, John Barry, also said that Haskell County was the uh, point of origin. Mm-hmm. That makes sense. Kansas, carry on my wayward flu. There'll be peace when you are through. Please don't leave me. According to the book, The 1918 Spanish Flu Epidemic, the history and legacy of the world's deadliest influenza outbreak, mm. which, by the way, we will we will put that link on our Goodreads page. 
one of the things that made it difficult to treat this particular flu outbreak was that uh, there were a number of different strains of the illness all happening at the same time. And even the same strain of the flu produced different symptoms in different people. So it was really hard to diagnose exactly what strain they had, let right. alone the fact that medicine in that day you know what? You just drank juice. That was pretty much it. They didn't have any medicines. For don't it. bathe. Yeah. Well, you certainly don't do that and stand in a crowded room with other people. Also, if you could just go outside, get some fresh air, stand out in the cold and snow for a while. Yeah, that'll, that, be, good. that'll be good for you. And I think it's also important to mention that everyone was kind of unprepared for this epidemic, because as you know, nobody expects the Spanish influenza. I knew you were going there. Oh, man, that's like three or four episodes in a row with obscure Monty Python references. Well, Although that that's one, hardly not That's obscure. not obscure, not that one. So the speculation is that it may have begun in Fort Riley. There were a lot of horses and donkeys and stuff at Fort Riley in those days, mm-hmm. and it caused for a rather unpleasant um, cleanup project. Uh, manure would pile up for months, drying throughout the winter, and in the spring they would they would burn it. So they ordered it burned on March 9th. A huge pile of dried dung was set ablaze. Just as a strong Kansas windstorm began, the smoke began uh, to develop an acrid yellow cloud that covered the countryside, even blocking out the sun. It got so bad. Ooh. It was literally a shitstorm. I also want to point out this is two episodes in a row where we've talked about thawing shit. That's going to be a uh, a sub podcast that we do. <laughs> <laughs> a spin-off, the Thawed Shit Podcast. Soft shit in the springtime with Kat and Jethro. There was thought that uh, that the smoke was carrying the germs that caused the flu, but we know now that, that that's not possible. What it did though, they think is damage the lungs of exposed residents in the area, making people in Kansas and certainly at Fort Riley more susceptible to getting it. So one day at Fort Riley, one of the cooks of all people reported to sick bay with a fever and a headache. He didn't feel well. By the end of the day, 400 other soldiers had reported with the same symptoms. Whoa. And it just grew from there. And so even though the burning of the manure didn't cause the flu directly, it weakened these people to the point where they where they got the flu. And then many of them were shipped out overseas. That's terrifying. And also a great reason to bring up um, that we should pay food service workers more <laughs> so that they can take the day off when they're sick. Yeah. <laughs> Of all people to get it first. Yeah. The guy who's touching your eggs. Yeah. You know? Thanks, Mary. As in typhoid. It started spreading pretty quickly between military camps in the U.S. And at that point, you know, the jumping off point was when they all got on ships and went to Europe to fight sure. World War One. But one doctor who, his whole name has been lost to history, his, his name was Roy something, in a letter to an acquaintance, and again, this is from that book that I just I just mentioned, He said, quote, Camp Devins is near Boston, has about 50,000 men or did before this epidemic broke loose. 
It also has the base hospital for the Division of the Northeast. The epidemic started about four weeks ago and has developed so rapidly that the camp is demoralized and all ordinary work is held up till it has passed. All assemblages of soldiers, taboo. These men start with what appears to be an attack of the grip or influenza, and when brought to the hospital, they very rapidly develop more severe, vicious types of pneumonia such as we've never seen. Two hours after admission, they have the mahogany spots on their cheekbones. And a few hours later, you can begin to see the psionesis extending from their ears and spreading all over the face. It's only a matter of a few hours until death comes. It happens that fast. It is simply a struggle for air until they suffocate. It is horrible. One can stand to see one or two or 20 men die, but when you see these poor devils dropping like flies... It sort of gets on your nerves. We have an average of about 100 deaths per day at this camp alone, and it keeps going up. And this was early in the epidemic. It got so bad during the peak of the epidemic, they were having a hard time disposing of the bodies. Sure. And so they were digging mass mass graves and just piling them in and covering them up. And in one case, a, a rainstorm came after, washed it all out, and like dead guys are like floating all over the area and the rivers and stuff. Carrying disease. Oh, Lordy. That's terrifying. Now, when you think about the 1918 flu epidemic, at least when I did, I thought of, hey, flu season, right? You've got flu season and it comes and it goes. It was different this year. It started in the spring initially, right after the cloud, the the poop cloud happened. Sure. And it was pretty bad for a while. But then as summer approached, the infection rate went down and people thought, oh, good. Okay, well, we're through that anyway. And it was it was relatively fine into the early autumn months. About September, it made a comeback and it came back with a vengeance. If you look at like a, a graph of deaths mm-hmm. in that uh, time period, you see it going up, 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 up from March to about May. And then it just drops off. And then when August comes around... It shoots up about five times higher on the grass earlier in the year. So it made a vicious comeback. And those who were affected with it earlier in the year were even more susceptible to it when it came around the second time. Oh, that's awful. You know, normally you think, well, you know, I've been immunized or or whatever. Built up a resistance. Not in this case. They were so weakened by it in many cases that when it came back a second time, it just fucking killed them. That's um, like when I had mono. And yeah, just like that. And it's you, just like the time I had mono. And you had to pull over at a rest stop and get a nap. I was, okay, so I had mono. Um, I don't know how long I had it for. I guess they can't tell. Um, but I, I, it was about a year of my life where I was just miserable. And um, then for about six years after, I would get sick anytime anyone I knew was hmm. sick. I, my immune system was so beaten down wow. from having mono. I just, I got everything. It was horrible. It took me years to recover from it. Did they misdiagnose you when you went to the doctor or did you not go to the doctor? No, I went to the doctor. And they didn't catch that it was mono? No, I, I knew I had mono. Did they give you anything for it? I'm, no. Is there anything you can take? No. You really? Just, you have just to... You just wait it out. Just sleep it off. Wow, I did not know that. I thought there was some sort of an antibiotic or something they could give you no. for it. Well, that sucks. It did. That's. I was taking naps mid-shower. I was so exhausted. <laughs> <laughs> well, I do that anyway. That's true. You know, it was a crazy time to be alive. The pandemic was so severe that from 1917 to 1918, life expectancy in the United States fell by 12 years. Wow. 
life expectancy in 1918 was 36.6 years. I'm older than that. You are older than that. Just, just, but just, still. Yeah, sure, sure, sure. But even without the pandemic, life expectancy back then was 42.2 years. What a horrible time to be alive. You know, we're well, at, at least we're you're at, alive. Well, yeah, <laughs> but you're worried about it at every moment. Sure. The war is going on. There are rations. There's just not enough for everybody to eat. You're dirty. Uh, you're dirty. You smell bad. Your friends, your family, your neighbors are, are, are being killed in this war on the other side of the world. And this was really the first time that we were fighting so far away yeah. as Americans. And then you get hit with this stuff. Well, I found some letters written by survivors. You love letters. Letters home. You're, you're such a letters home nut. It's such a, a direct look into yeah. their lives. It's like poking a hole in time and sticking your head through and taking a look at their yeah, life. Like Ace Ventura 2 style. That's exactly what I'm thinking. These aren't all letters. I'm Actually, some of them are just accounts that were written down years oh, okay. later. One survivor wrote, I was a skinny little boy with an enormous appetite. Just as my plate was put in front of me, I would feel no desire for food. My aunt put her hand on my head and got up from the table and took me upstairs and put me in my bed because I had a high fever. I think what happened was I slept and slept and slept and slept. I remember that time was a blur as I was lying in that little upstairs room. Mm -hmm. I would wake up and it would be daylight. I'd wake up again. It would be night and it might be dark the next time I woke up. I had no sense of day or night. I felt sick and hollow inside. And this was a time where, you know, there was no air conditioning. There was no heating other than wood fires. Right. Must have been just an awful time to, to be that sick. And when you don't know about the illness and you don't know how you get it and you don't know what your child being sick means, I mean, I would be tempted to be like, all right, get out. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not getting this. Get your shoes. We're at grandma's. <laughs> Bye. He goes on to say, my only knowledge of what was going on was from conversations I'd hear on the telephone, which I could hear because my room was near the head of the stairs. And I heard my aunt say, Will, oh no. And then, well, if you want me to. And she came into my room and she tried to tell me what had happened. And then the tears ran down her face. And so she didn't need to tell me. I knew that the worst thing that could happen had happened. My mother was marvelous. And when she died, the shine went out of everything. So this little boy is fighting for his life and learns that his mother is one of the victims of the flu. And that was not an oh. uncommon story. Anna Milani was uh, an only child during the pandemic, but she later remembered, we would march up and down the street singing, tramp, 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 the boys are marching. I spy Kaiser at the door and we'll get a lemon pie and we'll squish him in the eye and there won't be any Kaiser anymore. But in their enthusiasm, people did not realize that they were facing much more dangerous things than a German army. Milani continued, it was a mild day and we were sitting on the step and diagonally across from us was a little girl. 15-year-old girl who had just been buried. Toward the evening, we heard a lot of screaming going on, coming from the same house. A little baby, 18 months old, had passed away in that same family. In the street, there were crepes at the door, which is what they did for mourning at the time you'd hang black crepe on your right. door. 
If it was a young person, they would put white crepe on the door. If it was middle-aged, they would put black crepe. If it was elderly, one much older, they would put gray crepe on the door, signifying who had died. Doors up and down the street were covered in crepe. Oh, my goodness. That must have been eerie. But I bet real estate prices went way down. Oh, you could get a house for a steal. And then finally, it's a story about a guy named John Delano. He was a little boy. He was playing up and down the street, which is what, you know, little boys did in those days because there were no arcades. <laughs> right. That's the simplest explanation. Yeah. Uh, he said, quote, the undertaker, which was half a block away from me, had pine boxes stacked up on his sidewalk, piled up high. Oh. Me and my two friends would go down there and play on the boxes, which was like climbing the pyramids. What? No. Up and down and around the whole bit, jumping off. And my mother told me that I should never go down there. Don't go down on those boxes because there are dead people in them that have died. But we did anyway. And then these two friends of mine got sick right after that. And so did I. And then we got out again and went back to school. I was shocked to see that my friends were not around. They weren't home. I would knock on the door and they would open the door and they would say, no, Jimmy's not here or Frankie's not here. And I would say, where is he? And they would say, let your mother tell you. Oh, because they're dead. Well, I mean, don't play on boxes filled with dead people. That's the lesson that we've learned here today, kids. And now here we are 100 years later. And it seems like every flu season that comes around, there's some concern about this being the next big one, you know, that uh, there's going to be another pandemic. And we have had epidemics, but certainly nothing like they experienced in, in 1918. As you said earlier, it was kind of a perfect storm of conditions. And it resulted in uh, between 50 and 100 million deaths worldwide. That's incredible. Shocking. So besides the book, The 1918 Spanish Flu Pandemic, The History and Legacy of the World's Deadliest Influenza Outbreak. Very concise title, by the way. Yeah, there's not much room for any illustrations because the title is so damn long. <laughs> um, and by the way, that'll be on our Goodreads page. But I also got uh, a lot of my information from, of course, Wikipedia. So the lesson besides never play on piles of boxes filled with dead people mm -hmm. is get your flu shot <laughs> if you haven't already. <laughs> In the last episode, we uh, read an email from a guy named Justin who said that his mother was high school friends with the lady who was the only person to be abducted by Ted Bundy and escape. Absolutely incredible. An amazing story. He wrote back with some more details. He said, he said, I actually just spoke to mom and she said she hasn't spoken with Carol for a long time. So I think buying her dinner is not in my future. We had said, yeah, you should. <laughs> she's a cool lady. You got to hang out with her. But his mom remembers being in the basement with Carol the night of the incident. She said Carol was pretty upset and her boyfriend was comforting her. She also said Carol did get into Ted's Beetle. And as they were driving, Ted produced a set of handcuffs and began trying to cover a part of the Beatles' interior. Uh, she managed to get out of the bug and ran to a car behind her in traffic for help. What it, a beast. That's amazing. And it, it does not at all even a little bit surprise me that that night when Carol and Justin's mom were hanging out, they were in a basement. Because for some reason in the 70s, all teenagers hung out in basements. Yeah, and we called them rumpus rooms. <laughs> Ah, oh, the passing of the rumpus room. That it, sounds painful. <laughs> yeah, that'll give you a hemorrhoid. Uh, also got a message from uh, somebody who just said they bought their VIP tickets to our live show and they're driving 12 and a half hours what? to come to the show. That's amazing. Uh, wow. 
Wow. That blows Boy, my mind. Pressure's on now. I know. I'm so, I, I feel honored and confused. <laughs> Mostly confused. <laughs> but uh, we appreciate that very much and look forward to seeing you. And if you would like to join us, you can get tickets on our website, uh, theboxofoddities.com. Click on the live show link. And we will uh, see you in Nashville. Uh, until then, we will see you on Thursday when the next box of oddities uh shoots forth from your belly spurts alien style yeah uh spurts yeah yep. it's like audio bukkake um, <laughs> right on your phone yeah it's do you know how many people are gonna have to bu- uh, google bukkake now and you've ruined their lives <laughs> i'm sorry alexa add bukkake to my shopping list <laughs> we're gonna destroy a marriage i know it <laughs> Anyway, we will see you on Thursday. Until then, keep flying that freak flag. Fly it proudly, you freak. And so, let it be known that the box of oddities belongs to you, and its fate is in your hands. The box of oddities commits to the telling of stories, stories of the strange, the bizarre, the unexpected. We wish to offer our deeply felt gratitude and appreciation for your patronage. TheBoxOfOddities.com Copyright 2018. All rights reserved.